and welcome to episode 19 of the World Cycle series, Sea Serpents. Apologies for the unannounced delay, but I've been quite busy. I expect to be quite busy into the future, so the podcast is going to take a break until probably late May to early June. More about that at the end. My website, worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com, will probably not be taking the same hiatus, so you can follow me there if you want to read more of my work. Enjoy. I never spent much time in the ocean, never spent much time sailing, fishing, crabbing, never spent that much time exploring the water, so to speak. I came from central Takara, not quite the furthest one can get from the ocean, of course, but there's no real sailing culture in Takara, I suppose. There wasn't when I was born, certainly, and there's still not much. This is one of the many contrasts between me and Sharik. Sharik was about a hundred years younger than me, born in Calton, at the time the largest island nation on Morak, now second or third, after Tsapaya and, well, it depends on if you count Hazinai as an island nation now, or if it's a continent still. But that aside, Sharik was born to the Yonan clan Hazera, seafarers on the western coast of Calton. He grew up around the ocean. He grew up on the ocean. Hazera were hunters, fishers, crabbers, explorers to some extent. They spent most of their life on and around the ocean. They got most of their food. They got most of their resources from the ocean. And Sharik loved the ocean. For Sharik it was home. For Sharik it was sustenance. For Sharik it was, most importantly, an opportunity. Here is one of the many similarities between Sharik and I. We were both explorers, both curious. Sharik, we might say, took after some of the other people, some of the other gods or whatever they are that I've talked about in these stories. Sharik's notes on sea monsters are still widely used, as Odnor's notes on stones are still widely used. Sherrick was interested, but he wasn't so dissimilar from the people of his clan, in the same way Yogg had been curious, explorative, but not so different from the people of its clan. They weren't quite the same, mind you. None of us are quite the same. Sherrick was, perhaps, more violent than most of us. And Sherrick was different from the rest of the clan. 
Not so different, maybe, but he was much more interested in the exploration than much of the clan was. Growing up on the ocean, growing up fishing and crabbing, Sherrick had encountered his fair share of sea monsters. He had encountered all sorts of things. Those screaming fish that seemed to lure people into the ocean. Black schools, those things that consume boats. And the less exotic sorts of things you would find in the ocean. Giant jellyfish, giant squids, or fish, though those aren't so dangerous. What he had never found was a sea serpent. All fish are the closest, perhaps. Some black schools look like serpents until they hit a boat. But, but the question of whether sea serpents are real is a complicated one. Most likely, the stories before Sherrick came from all fish and black schools. And perhaps Sherrick was obsessed is slightly strong, but Sherrick was very dedicated to finding sea serpents. Sherrick was very dedicated to finding monsters, to finding strange things in the ocean, and killing them, and taking them apart, and writing down all the detail he could. Sherrick's legacy is different, of course, than Odnor's. Even to speak of them before they became what they became, Sherrick was alone. Sherrick could draw as many diagrams, write as many notes as he wanted, but nobody saw the things that he saw. Eventually, most of the things he wrote would be corroborated, but that would take a long time. And it can be hard to trust the notes of explorers, much as I'm loath to admit it. There are so many things I've seen and recorded that nobody else has seen. There are so many things that so many of us explorers, so many people like me, or more mundane explorers have seen and recorded that have never been seen again. Strange things. Maybe they are real. Maybe they're products of some magical strangeness. Maybe they're products of delirium. It's not always certain. But, to Sherrick's credit, the vast majority of things that he described have since been corroborated. Sherrick had not been the most social person before he left for his life of exploration. He hated coming back to the shore. He hated being back on land. He hated to be away from the ocean. But mostly he hated to stop his exploration, his quest for new things, his need to find a sea serpent. He did not return home often, and when he did, he did not stay long. And so, though I can tell you with as much certainty as I am capable of, that the story I'm going to tell is true, and did indeed happen to Sherrick, happen to the serpent. Nobody was there. Only Sherrick saw what happened. Only Sherrick experienced it. It had been months since he had seen another person. It had been days since he had eaten. It had been nearly a day since he had had fresh water. And this was common for Sherrick. Yonan might be more resilient than Vinan or Kalnan. But Sherrick pushed the limits of that resilience. Sherrick pushed the limits as much as he possibly could to resist the need to see people, to resist the need to leave the ocean. Different people who have met Sherrick since the end of this story will describe his boat differently. When I've seen it, mostly it has been made of driftwood. It seems as if it would not float. There are no sails, no oars, no motors. 
It's unclear exactly what magic moves it, but certainly it can move still. Other people describe it differently, but there is always this element of repair, of driftwood about the thing. Sherrick disliked so much to leave the ocean that he would repair his ship with refuse found in the water rather than go home and make his ship safe. To the extent that there is an exact start to this bit of the story, it starts with doldrums. It starts with no wind and barely any tide. It starts with Sherrick's little fragile ship bobbing in the water, barely able to go anywhere. The problem, of course, is as magically talented as Sherrick was, if he hadn't eaten in days and hadn't drunk for hours, there was not so much strength he could summon to move. And so, while not completely stranded in the middle of the ocean, he was close to. It is not quite fair to say that Sherrick had an uncanny knack for identifying sea creatures. He had spent nearly 20 years almost by himself, almost always on the ocean, searching and documenting sea creatures. His knack was not quite uncanny. But I have seen black schools. I have seen those moving silhouettes, and they look like, they look like what they mean to look like. They look like dolphins, they look like sharks, they look like whales, they look like squid. They look almost exactly like they ought to until they reach the ship you ride on. But not so for Sherrick, of course. Sherrick could spot a black school a mile away, perhaps further. I think that many people know what a black school is, but they are less common these days, and many people like me are not so exposed to the ocean. So to briefly explain, a black school is, well, it's a school of fish or bugs. They always appear as silhouettes in the ocean. It is hard to make out any details in those silhouettes, even if the silhouette is just of a circle, a blob floating through the water. It's difficult to make out the bugs until they are very close. But the bugs are not so small. They're perhaps the size of a hand. And they move very close together. And they are, they were, a distinct hazard. As boats more and more are made of metal, they are not so much a concern these days. But they love to eat wood. And they used to track boats in the ocean. And they were always very difficult to get rid of. They were mostly not considered so deadly. They are, of course, a very distinct problem. But it is rare for any story of a black school to end with the school completely destroying a boat. Of course, part of that is because the people whose boats are completely destroyed often don't make it back, I expect. While Sharik was usually quite good at dealing with a black school, as I mentioned, he was quite weak. He hadn't eaten in days, and hadn't drunk for a while, and the water he had drunk was not so pure to begin with. Black schools can be most easily frightened away with the uses of magic, though more modern technology, and particularly explosives, can be quite functional in that regard. And Sharik's boat was small, and the black school was not the biggest that Sharik had ever seen, but it was big enough that he supposed, he guessed immediately upon seeing it, that he would lose his entire ship. Now black schools don't eat flesh, typically. They don't eat people, they don't eat animals. 
But there's not so much difference to being stranded in the doldrums as there is to being eaten by a school of black insects the size of your hand. Perhaps a little smaller on Sherrick. Sherrick was quite large when he wasn't starved. Of course, Sherrick sprang immediately into action, what little action he could think to do. He tried to pull wind into his sail. He tried to redirect his boat toward where he was sure the current was stronger. It was fair to say that he had been lounging about, starving possibly to death, but lounging certainly. And so he tried to push his boat as best he could toward faster moving water, toward where he might find wind to escape the black school. But he was too slow, I suppose. He may not have had time, even if he had seen it just on the horizon, to actually escape this black school, but I suppose he was too slow. He did not have the time, he did not have the energy, didn't have the power to move himself away, didn't have the power to scare it away. And so the black school reached his little boat, his little driftwood boat. And those insects, those bugs, they started crawling into the wood. They started burrowing, they started chewing, and the boat sank, of course, and Sherrick sank with it into the water. It was not the first time that Sherrick had sunk, it was not the first time that a black school had destroyed one of Sherrick's boats, but it was perhaps the worst case. As I said, normally there is something left after a black school has destroyed a boat, there is something for people to float home on. But Sherrick's boat was small, and the school was big, and the boat was gone within minutes. There was nothing left for Sherrick to use to float. Even the sails had been consumed. Black schools, of course, consume cellulose, but at the time we didn't know that. And so Sherrick found himself starving and thirsty, floating in calm water, barely any wind to cool him down. He was not hopeless, not exactly. Sherrick was not the sort of person who feared death. Sherrick was not the sort of person to have hope to begin with. I don't mean to say that he was a pessimist or a nihilist of any kind. He just had a particular approach to life, an approach that I enjoy whenever I had the chance to speak to the serpent. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Sherrick let himself float in the water let the black school drag him along until they submerged too far to be of any use. He let himself drift, and he stared up at the sky, at the clouds, at the birds, and he gave very little thought to how he would survive. Sherrick was not exactly a lucky person. He was not unlucky, of course, I don't mean that. I mean, Sherrick didn't have any notion that he would be saved. He didn't have any notion, as I said, that he would survive at all. And so, he let himself drift lazily in the bare currents, and he gave very little thought to what he would do. As the sun set and the world grew cold, Sherrick floated. He floated, and he wondered what to do. He wondered if his quest had been pointless. He wondered if, perhaps, there was no such thing as a sea serpent. And then, he had a new wonder, a new interest, a new idea. I had never spent much time on the ocean, because when I travel between countries, between continents, I go through the underground. 
The underground, of course, is under the ocean. And Sherrick recalled that as the sun was setting. And so Sherrick, not particularly expecting to survive, decided to swim toward the underground. Perhaps that would save him, or perhaps he would find something interesting in the far depths, in the places he had never been able to go before. So far down into the ocean, that light had never reached him, that he would surely be crushed to death. Sherrick has told me of that swim since, has described the feeling of desperation the harder it got not to breathe the water, has described the feeling of blood pouring out of his body as the pressure became too strong, has described the lightless depths. I have been in lightless places, I have been to the bottom of the ocean, but, but I was not, I was not completely a person, I suppose. I was different from that when I did these things. And when Sherrick describes it, I think that perhaps, perhaps Sherrick was never meant to be completely a person. Sherrick describes pain, describes fear, describes desperation, but most of all, Sherrick describes excitement, describes the strange things that he saw so far below, describes luminescent fish, describes jellyfish, describes the bottom of the world, where there's only the bones of great beasts. He didn't notice at first, when he reached the bottom of the ocean, so very far below where he had started. He had swum a long way. He had bled a lot. He was in a lot of pain. But he didn't stop to think, because he had found interesting bones. He had found great skeletons, and he had thought maybe, maybe here was proof of sea serpents. And so he had investigated, and no, they were whales. <laughs> and interestingly, amusingly for me, it was his upset at finding the bones of whales at the bottom of the ocean that caused Sherrick to break through the ground. There are floods from time to time in the underground and the depths. Water pours in from the ocean or from lakes or from rivers. The ground breaks. Things shift. The water table gets upset. There are floods. It is not an unknown thing. It is not even that unusual. There are usually ways around, of course. And so when this part of the depths flooded, because Sherrick had broken his way through, nobody really noticed. Nobody took much heed. I was in the underground, not very close to where Sherrick was, to be clear. And I would never have heard of that flood, if not for what happened next, of course. Sherrick fell through the bottom of the world, so to speak, into great open, blank, empty spaces, into more sightless depths, and he found there an orange glow, of course. He found there a great worm. And he supposed, in his delirium, in this flood, that he had found a sea serpent. Of course, that would be the closest there is, surely. What else could be a sea serpent but a great worm, except that they don't go into the ocean, do they? Sherrick swam toward the great worm, and was consumed by it, was consumed by it very deliberately, mind you, with blood pouring out of his empty eye sockets, out of his ears, out of his nose. Sherrick was consumed by the great worm, and within it he saw, he saw discovery, the remains of discovery after fear, saw Yog and Fen, and he knew discovery, of course he did. 
Sherrick had even heard of me when he died the first time. And he had found Discovery. And he thought, perhaps, Discovery would be a boon to him. Would be a boon to his ability to explore the world. To explore the oceans. To find those things that he would never see with eyes missing. There was no fight between Sherrick and Discovery. There was no stabbing of Fen. There was no attempt to kill Yogg, of course. There was an understanding. It is hard to describe a speech, though Sherrick does if you talk to him. He describes a conversation that happened instantly. And he describes the feeling of becoming what he is now. He describes the feeling of consuming Fen, of being consumed by Fen, of becoming the great serpent that swam back out out of the depths, back to the ocean's surface, only to make himself another boat from Driftwood. An empty boat. A boat with no bottom, with no propulsion, to set about sailing once again. I do miss Sherrick, perhaps more than I miss any of the other of these things we call gods. I talked to Sherrick a lot from time to time, much as he didn't like people. He was quite an interesting person. But, well, I suppose I'll get to that some other time. Until then... Thank you for listening to this episode of the World Cycle Podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. As I mentioned at the start, I'm likely to be taking a break for a while. I've been quite busy being depressed, but also doing a PhD, basically. I have my colloquium or confirmation hearing or thesis defense coming up, so I have to do a bunch of stuff in a reasonable hurry. And that's supposed to be mid-May, but it may get pushed back into June. Hence why I'm not sure when this hiatus will finish. I will probably post something about it on my blog when that's finished, but I can't even guarantee I'll remember at that point. I do very much intend to come back, though, and not take as long a break as I did when I was doing my master's, because, well, I need something to do. So, until then, follow my blog, worldcyclepodcast.wordpress.com, or go to Tumblr, worldcycle.tumblr.com, or go to Twitter, at the theworldcycle. You can read more of my stuff. My blog's probably not taking a hiatus. And, um... Ooh, turns out I was wrong about golden orb spiders. They're not actually that dangerous. Well, they're not not dangerous, but they're not actually that venomous. Also, orfish are real, and they can get really long. So, Google orfish. Bye. Mm.